2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Neil Levy, professor of philosophy at Macquarie University and research fellow at the Oxford Uehiro Center for Practical Ethics. His new book, Bad Beliefs, Why They Happen to Good People, is just out from Oxford University Press and is accessible freely online. Misinformation, disinformation, fake news, alternative facts... We are awash in a vast sea of epistemically questionable, not to mention false, testimony. How can we discern what is epistemically good to believe from what is not? And why are so many of us apparently vulnerable to believing what is epistemically bad? In his new book, Levy argues that we are, in fact, acting rationally, in accordance with how we have evolved to defer to our peers and authorities in our social networks. Levy argues that bad beliefs, which are beliefs that are unresponsive to reliable evidence, are more likely in epistemically polluted environments, and that our current epistemic environments are, in fact, epistemically polluted. Overall, the book takes a bold stand against traditional epistemological emphasis on the individual cognitive agent's responsibility for justifying their beliefs. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Neil Levy. Welcome to New Books and
1: Philosophy. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Um, So we're going to be talking about your new book, Bad Beliefs: Why They Happen to Good People. Um, But let's talk about you first for a second. Um, You know, what's your philosophical background? How did you sort of get interested in philosophy and get interested in Uh, you know, the areas that you work in and, you know, how did this particular book come about?
1: I don't know how I ended up in philosophy by accident, I guess. I, uh, after a false start studying journalism, I uh, enrolled in a degree in English literature. Uh, These were the days of high theory and I gravitated towards theory, which was basically continental philosophy. Ended up doing a PhD uh, on continental philosophy, but uh, classified as a cultural studies degree or literary theory degree. Um, then I couldn't get a job, unsurprisingly, uh, and did a second PhD this time in philosophy on the metaphysics of free will. At some point, I've been I've been doing applied ethics most of my career, um, largely because for entirely practical reasons. That's where the jobs were. At some point, I wanted to become empirical in applied ethics, uh, doing applied ethics in a way that was informed by science, particularly psychological science. Uh, So I became more and more interested in um, how moral cognition works, and that led to cognition more generally. So I guess by drift is the answer. <laughs> and this book I know I mean I know you've done
0: some very interesting you know empirical actually work as well as theoretical work in um broadly speaking a social epistemology.
1: That's right. So in Australia I I sort of have a a lab uh with a, a postdoc who's a psychologist and we do work on uh beliefs and rationality uh in the kind of work that philosophers like to draw on, as well as more straightforward psychological work, uh, but I also like to um, bracket all of that and do straight philosophy as well. I think uh, I'm a pluralist in philosophy, and I think we need lots of different approaches. Good. Okay. So, uh, bad beliefs.
0: What what are they? Let's let's start with the basic question. Cool.
1: Nothing very precise, and that's the answer to every question you're going to ask. Uh, very <laughs> precise. Uh, so, my bad beliefs. I'm trying to pick out beliefs that are um, that conflict with what we take the evidence to show. So, for many t- subjects, there are no bad beliefs in the. There's no strong evidence or there's no highly reliable evidence. On some topics, there's evidence that's produced by an epistemic community, which we have good reason to think is a well-structured epistemic community, uh, where that evidence strongly supports one conclusion or a very narrow range of conclusions. So bad belief is a belief that conflicts with those conclusions. So, paradigm bad beliefs are climate change skepticism, uh, anti vax beliefs, um, beliefs about um, electoral systems. For example, the Big Steal is a bad belief. It has a belief that um, uh, is not supported by credible evidence, and yet, apparently, people hold this belief. So is it, is it the fact
0: what makes it bad that there's evidence for the opposite and they're believing a false belief or, I mean, you also have a, you know, a a bit of a discussion about what makes something a belief um, in terms of like what we do as well as what we think. Right. And so bad beliefs, are um, genuine beliefs on her, on your view? You know, they're just like false beliefs.
1: Yes. Right? When I started this book, um, which was pre-pandemic, it's a pandemic book, I was going to define belief quite precisely. Uh, I was particularly interested in that debate. I ended up with a book in which I don't define anything very precisely, including belief. But it is important for me that a belief is a representational state that drives behavior. I do think there's a lot of endorsements out there, put it neutrally, that is claims that people endorse, which don't drive behavior beyond endorsement or, or drive a very narrow range of behavior. And there's an open question about whether those are genuine beliefs, but also whether we should care all that much or what reasons we have for caring uh, that people endorse things, which they then don't go on to act on. With climate change scepticism, people do act on it. Uh, they resist legislation, they would address it, um, they, that uh, plays a role in their choice of political candidates, and so on. So, I think that's beliefy enough to, uh, for us to be really concerned about. Okay. Anti vax beliefs, probably even a better, a better example, because you can worry about all kinds of expressive behavior. But here's a belief that's powerful enough that people are saying, I'm not going to allow my child to get vaccinated. That looks like, like a factual belief to me.
0: Right. Good. Okay. Um, so what, one of the things again that you say in the very beginning actually of the book is that, um, you started to write a very different book than the one that we are actually discussing. Um, the one that actually you did end up writing. Um, so it it might be helpful to, to say how you had planned to write about Bad belief, you know, uh, some explanation of of why people hold them uh, as a as a kind of prelude to the positive account that the, that you actually end have ended up defending in the book.
1: Sure. So the the book I thought I was going to write was a book about deficits and dispositions. Uh, the question was, how do people who believe badly differ from those who believe well in how they think how they process evidence Uh, and the hypothesis if you want to put it that way was that they're going to be more susceptible to confirmation bias they're going to be less open-minded they're going to be less epistemically humble Uh, and these factors were going to be powerful influences on belief formation. Problem is, I just don't think it's true. Uh, Now, this may be a bad belief of mine. It's an open question in psychology right now to what extent this is true. I don't think it's a bad belief, but it's a debated question in psychology. Um, There are A number of respectable and respected psychologists who think that the story I just sketched is in fact the right story. Uh, But, you know, psychology is going through a replication crisis and I think a lot of the evidence for that is um, not so much unreplicable as cherry-picked it uses a narrow range of questions, a narrow range of topics. And it's framed inadvertently to get the conclusion um, that it that uh, it generates, that bad believers are disposed towards bad belief. I don't think that's a major part of the story, although I do think it's part of the story.
0: Okay. Um... So I suppose that there's a if there's an overarching message of the book, it's that, you know, bad believers aren't, you know, as you sort of just mentioned, aren't really any doing anything differently or irrational or more buffeted by, you know, various cognitive biases than good believers. Um uh and that's because individual cognition is just, you know, not as determinative of our beliefs as we, you know, perhaps we philosophers, you know, epistemologists tend to think. Um, would would you say that that's, you know, sort of where you ended up? And then, and then, of course, from that comes. The main message of the book, I suppose, which is, um, it's it's the contexts, the environments in which we are embedded, that determine whether you end up in the bad believing camp or the good believing camp.
1: Right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, as as I mentioned, I started it in continental philosophy, and in some ways, the the picture is not. Uh, all that far from somebody like Foucault bad beliefs is a sociological state it's not a state of uh, a bad belief is 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 not picked out by uh, a belief that's false but by a sociological status that is it conflicts with the the findings of epistemic communities well-structured epistemic communities that's sociological the explanation of why people hold bad beliefs is also largely sociological it's to do with trust networks it's true that bad believers aren't um typically stellar epistemic agents who are engaged in responsible updating of beliefs in in the light of evidence carefully gathered but almost nobody is and nor should we expect them to be bad believers come to their beliefs for the same reasons as good believers via testimony. Testimony is a perfectly uh, fine, to use a technical term, a perfectly legitimate way of acquiring beliefs. It's a way in which we can acquire beliefs that um, have the kind of epistemic status we want our beliefs to have. Uh, The difference between bad and good believers is who do you trust as a source of testimony?
0: okay, um, can you say a bit more about that? I mean, we're all embedded in similar sorts of environments. I mean, people you know one of the one of the striking, i suppose you know aspects of you know climate change and denial or vaccine or any of the the standard paradigm cases of bad belief is you know these these sorts of beliefs have, you know, split families, for example, you know, um, it's not like people on the other side of the world have, you know, acquired certain beliefs and those of us over here, but, you know, it's like the person that we see every day at the dining table or, you know, at breakfast or, or that we hang out with. Um, Um, so, so how is it that like some of those people at the very same you know, table will end up, you know, QAnon or, uh, you know, climate denial and, and, you know, the, their partner, like right across the table is like, that's, that's not the right. That's not a good belief.
1: So, uh, in the empirical literature, one of the strongest predictors of accepting conspiracy theories is trust in mainstream media. If you have low trust in mainstream media and you're looking for other sources, that's relatively likely to push you in conspiratorial directions. I do think trust is the the uh, the key ingredient here, so I, I don't know quite the right metaphor, but uh, each of us has uh, an epistemic outlook, or something like that. Constituted by a set of priors, in Bayesian terms, a set of prior beliefs, uh, which are weighted in various ways, and also a set of priors not only in what we take to be the case, but also uh, what we take to be or who we take to be reliable sources of evidence and unreliable sources of evidence. And then we update, uh, given those background priors. What well, we take to be the case antecedently, which of course we weigh relatively heavily, so that evidence that conflicts with it is, um, yeah, passes a, 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 a it has to pass a, a, a higher threshold for us to update in, in its light, and discounting evidence when it comes from somebody we see as unreliable. Um, and then we know quite a lot about what makes people reliable informants. That is, what what factors uh, we actually weigh as um, markers of reliability. Um, a lot of it is it, it is uh, straightforward. Um, we weigh cons- consensus heavily. Uh, we weigh competence heavily. If somebody has a record of getting things wrong by our lights, then we discount the testimony. But we also take their values into account very heavily, and that's rational. Because if you don't share my values, you're telling me something. Um, I may rightly wonder uh, whether you have my interest at heart in telling me this, whether you're trying to deceive me, whether you're trying to take advantage of me, or whether you just don't care whether I end up with true beliefs. And these relations of trust, I think, uh, predict how we process evidence. And given perfectly normal Bayesian update, uh, you can get polarization. You can get people forming beliefs in opposite directions on the same set of inputs. I don't show that. I don't have the formal skills. But Kevin Dorst does show that.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you've, you've, in a way you've, you've, you've kind of backed into this, what you call in the book, this idea of, you know, outsourcing belief, um, you know, which involves, you know, again, networks of trust, relying on other people. Um, uh, and, and you argue that this outsourcing, you know, is both, you know, much more fundamental to, you know, to what we, what we come to believe than, you know, your standard individualistic epistemology, right? So that's a a very, you know, sort of key social epistemic, um, uh, you know, premise of your, of your argument. Um, uh, can you say a bit about why this, you know, how this outsourcing works and, and why it is, uh, you know, rational for, for us to do it?
1: Sure. So, Here I'm quite strongly influenced by the literature in uh, cultural evolution, uh, a particular set of literature in cultural evolution, the so-called West Coast School, uh, more than the Parisians. Um, The cultural evolution literature, you could look at it as a sort of anthropological uh, literature. It's trying to explain the success of uh, Indigenous um, knowledge. And Indigenous knowledge, how to cope in harsh environments can be extremely sophisticated and extremely successful. It's got to be successful because there they are, coping in harsh environments. not just coping, but flourishing. Uh, Harsh environments from the Australian outback, through to um the arctic uh tundra we know these are really harsh environments uh because there are a number of you know well-equipped um expeditions into this environment you know uh, uh, financed by the richest empire the world had ever seen at that point the british empire uh, ended in disaster. So um, Franklin's expedition to the Canadian North, um, I believe everybody perished, or yeah, I believe everybody perished. But they actually perished in a in an area that the local Inuit called Fat Island because it was so rich in resources. They were simply unable to create the uh, Techniques of surviving in in that winter for themselves. They had the same big brains as the Inuits. They had all this science, but they were unable to create those techniques. Um, Food detoxification methods are great examples. Um, So, corn leads to a disease called pellagra, corn consumption. It took until the 1930s for now I'm going to sound like a, like a New Age kook. Western science to identify what, um, what, what was causing pellagra. It turns out to be niacin uh, deficiency. But the indigenous people who relied on corn didn't get pellagra. It was almost unknown. Um, and that's because they cooked corn with an alkali, which... Um, releases the niacin that's chemically bound uh in the corn obviously they had no concept of niacin or um alkali um but they'd hit upon a way of doing uh, uh you know, a way of going on that enabled them to flourish and to rely on this um this staple food and almost certainly They developed this through genuine evolutionary processes, which can work much more rapidly when it's cultural evolution than biological evolution. They didn't have explicit knowledge about how to do this, but they knew you had to do it, and they were able to pass on this knowledge. Um, We are agents who are adapted to acquire knowledge in this kind of way because that's the kind of animal we are. The kind of knowledge we need to flourish in a local environment can't be genetically encoded because it varies from environment to environment. Detoxification for cassava is completely different to detoxification for corn, which is completely different from detoxification for the Nardu plant in in, um, the Australian uh, outback. All of these staple foods need to be t- detoxified and you need to detoxify them in completely different ways uh, by cooking with alkaline one case by washing and storing and washing again uh, in another case by grinding the seeds and roasting the seed pods in the third case is a completely different techniques you've got to acquire them from your group you can't invent them for yourselves so we have these dispositions to acquire knowledge vertically and horizontally that is um, from our peers uh, uh, as children uh, but from our elders as well particularly restricted elders so we have prestige biases we have conformity biases these are ways of acquiring local um, uh, know-how which we absolutely need we're disposed to do it we will do it whether we uh, are aware of doing it or not and all going well they're ways of acquiring knowledge
0: okay so Um, so what a, you know, you, you argue that it's, it's, that we do, we do in fact, um, often, you know, outsource, uh, you know, not just like who we, who we're, well, we outsource, um, you know, I'm going to rely on trust this particular person, to give me testimony if he, if they, you know, share my values and, and belong to my community and so forth. Um, but you also have this idea that, you know, of, of, second order, um, evidence where, uh, we also outsource the very decision of like, who should I rely on? Um, so can you, can you explain how that, how that works?
1: I think of this as, You know, um, networks of trust. So I uh, do read some of the climate change literature myself, but I'm very limited in how much I can absorb, uh, how much I can understand because I'm not a climate scientist and I don't have uh, either the special background in climate science or the mathematical sophistication that I need to make sense of it, but I have strong opinions and I take it I have justified opinions. I have justified opinions because um, I discount and weigh work on climate science in a way that's sensitive to um, those people I take to be uh, the people to defer to, the, who are they? Well, they're people who have certain markers of reliability. Um, they possess PhDs. They pos- in in the relevant area, of course. They possess track records, uh, publication in the uh, relevant areas. Um, they represent a consensus. So I I think that consensus statements by scientific uh, organizations are very powerful here. Work that then conflicts with that consensus I regard, you know, as uh, unlikely to be re- reliable and work that coheres with it I weigh more heavily. When I watch the news, I'm sensitive to these cues in an indirect way. I hope that the news organisations are themselves uh, keyed into networks which trace back to reliable sources. As we know, not all networks are um, you know, the right networks uh, of or the, the right uh, informants. Uh, and we also know that even the best ones uh, get it wrong and uh, um, have policies that uh, enforce a you know a balance when when no balance should be enforced, for example. But on many topics, uh, we are apt to, and I think justified in relying on what we see on mainstream news sources, because we take those mainstream news sources to be sensitive. Uh, to testimony, which is in, in in turn sensitive to testimony, which is in turn sensitive to testimony, which is reflecting the scientific consensus. Uh, so I do take it to be mediated. There's lots of um, information loss. There's lots of room for it to go wrong. Um, but so long as the testimonial networks are sufficiently thick, and there are you know uh, multiple sources and corrections going on, I think uh, the whole network uh, can be relied on. In any case, it is relied on. Uh, so we'd better hope, we'd better try to make these networks as reliable as possible, because even the people who say, I do my own research, actually uh, rely on their own networks in just the same sort of way. They're just different networks. Mm-hmm.
2: That's shipstation.com with the code P-O-D.
0: So let me, um, uh, so you've been talking about, you know, what is just it, it, that we're justified in, in relying on these, these networks, um, you know, these indicators of consensus. um, uh, And, and, a moment ago, you were also talking about that we are adapted. You know, we're, we're the kind of creature that acquires knowledge. You know, through you know cultural transmission in various ways. Um, so, I just wanted to clarify what you mean when you say it's it's rational for you know for us to you know have you know hold bad beliefs. Um, Do you mean it's rational because we are adapted to uh, acquiring beliefs from, you know, from our peers and our elders? Uh, Or do you mean it's rational because it's being responsive to the evidence? Um, Normally, the idea of being adapted to something is distinguished, I should say, from, you know, what we ought to do, you know, the way we do it, the way we've, we've, you know, evolved versus some sort of normative sense of rationality. Can, can you explain how you see that distinction? If you think there is a distinction there?
1: I, i accept that distinction so uh i i, I map this onto sort of gigarenza versus um say Kahneman and Tversky, to to uh to use reference points from the psychological literature so Kahneman and toversky famously claim that cognition is irrational because or elements important elements of cognition uh are irrational because we rely on heuristics and biases. And these heuristics and biases uh, leave us uh, leaving evidence uh, on the table or responding to the way evidence is framed in a way that doesn't reflect uh, its actual force and so on. So they say it's irrational, and it's the normative sense of irrationality that you just distinguished that they have in mind and Gigerenzer comes along and says, "Well, be that as it may; people are rational because doing these things there's no accident that we are subject to these heuristics and biases we, uh, it's not uh, uh, because you know God made us and God had a sense of humor." Um, it's because evolution made us, and evolution, uh, although it's it's not a maximizing process, of course, doesn't, uh, m- unlikely to result in systematic dispositions that don't work. And these ones do work. The heuristics and biases are, in fact adapted to the environment, and they're adapted to the environment in in an epistemic sense. They enable us to achieve our epistemic goals. So, And that's an ecological sense of rationality, um, and quite a few people who defend the rationality of human cognition do so on those grounds. I'm agnostic on the Gigerenza, Kahneman, and Tversky debate, That is to say, I don't know uh, whether the best account of the evolution of heuristics and biases uh, is one on which they are well adapted to ancestral environments. Uh, My claim is more fundamental, which is that a great deal of the evidence, not all of it, but a great deal of the evidence for the heuristics and biases is misunderstanding what 's going on and it's misunderstanding by go- what 's going on by looking at the first order evidence only it's the shared mistake of Gigorenza and Kahneman and Tversky so framing effects is um, a, a nice example um, framing effects uh, uh, it work by presenting agents with scenarios which differ only in how the information is framed. So the same set of numbers uh, is framed either in a loss frame, uh, 400 people will die out of 600, or a gain frame, 200 will be saved out of 600. For example, in Kahneman and Tversky's famous original experiment. And Kahneman and Tversky say, will it be irrational for you to change your preferences over options, whether to choose A and or, or B versus uh, alternatives, just on the basis of the framing, because all the first-order facts are held fixed across frames. And I say, yes, all the first-order facts are held fixed, but that doesn't mean it's irrational to change your preference on the basis of framing. It depends how framing works. Framing, I, su- I suggest, is testimony. And it's perfectly rational to change your preferences over first-order fixed facts depending on what testimony you're given. So if somebody comes along and says, which of these options is better, A or B? You know a lot about A or B. So I choose A or B, and they say B, and I say, okay, I'll choose B. If anyone says to me, wow, you're highly irrational, because if Carrie had said A, you would have chosen A. But all the you know, A and B aren't changed by Carrie's recommendations. They're the same across uh, both uh, the actual case and the counterfactual. You know, I'm going to say, well, hang on. That's how recommendations work. Recommendations don't change the first order facts. They change my preferences um, in a second order way. Uh, Carrie says this option is better than that one. I don't take Carrie's preferences to change the option. I change, uh, I take them to be a guide to which is more choice worthy. That's how framing works. And there's experimental evidence that is how framing works that uh, people take the um, gain frame to be used to recommend an option, and it is used to recommend an option. People do use a gain frame when they think more highly of, of an option. It's communicative, there's nothing irrational about responding to communications. And I think we can generalize that. Our default effects, uh, where people are more likely to choose an option that's a default. I think that's a, an implicit recommendation. Uh, order effects, where people have preferences for items listed earlier, implicit recommendation. Salience effects, implicit recommendations. There's nothing irrational Normatively about responding to this, it's responding to implicit testimony, and it's perfectly rational to respond to testimony.
0: Okay, well that was that was helpful, because um, I would have you know sort of pegged you on the Gigarenzer side of that of that debate, um, which would not be precisely correct then. Um, so we talk about implicit recommendations, um, and this is where you, you get into, you know, talking about nudges, right. Which, which I want to get to. Um, but first I think, I think it might be helpful to talk about, um, what you call, you know, polluted environments or epistemically polluted environments, because, you know, the, the upshot is, that, you know, when, I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is why bad beliefs happen to good people. And the idea is, you know, the, these, you know, people, good people that we are, we are justified. We are rational in, uh, um, obtaining the, you know, the beliefs that we have, I mean, this is, this is sort of, it's, it's been rational. It's helped us survive, um, to acquire beliefs the way we do, you know, using others, uh, and depending on them to, you know, provide us with, with good information. Um, and you, you argue that the problem is not that, the people who are believing the bad things are, you know, again, somehow like not operating, uh, in some normatively good way. Uh, but that they're in an epistemically polluted environment in some way. Um, so, and, and moreover that, you know, this is the kind of environment we're in and, uh, most of us, don't have the ability to navigate in this polluted environment. So, can you can you explain what, how you define a, an epistemically polluted environment, why you think we're we're in one, um, or at least some of us, um, and why we can't, you know, sort of make our way through this kind of environment? Why it why it ends up messing us up?
1: Sure. So. Um go back to an earlier point in the conversation, you pointed out that uh people in very uh similar circumstances, you know, across the dinner table from each other, can end up going in different directions. Um and that's important. It's important to emphasize that how much we share any value of where you like, say um americans to, to like most of, most of the research is done in the u.s so you can use americans as an example why do two middle-class people diverge on say climate change given similar sorts of uh, uh social setting uh background education and so forth interestingly uh republicans uh who are, know more about climate science are more likely to be climate sceptics than those who know less. Um, I think given how much we share, um, it would be very surprising if people ended up with bad beliefs, if there was nothing they could point to in what looks like science to support the bad beliefs. The status of science is such that very few people are really uh, sin- sincerely prepared to say, Well, my beliefs conflict with science, but so much the worse for science. It's because apparent science, and for that matter, genuine science, is polluted that it's possible to end up with bad beliefs. There's just enough science out there. Parent science and real science to support climate change skepticism for example there's an by which I mean there are enough people with genuine phds for exa- for example from uh, you know reputable institutions and with genuine publications who will come along and say the science isn't reliable uh, they are pollutants um in so far as we live in an epistemic environment in which they are given far more prominence than they deserve. Uh, Some of them may be perfectly sincere. Uh, So, you know, I don't want to censor them nor to silence them. Um, The epistemic environment, the environment of cues on which um, which we look to in deciding how to allocate epistemic trust, um, is polluted when those cues aren't distributed in a well in a way that reflects um, their 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 actual prevalence in the scientific community. For example, a media that uses um, false ba- balance that says, "Well, if we've got somebody uh, who's, who's who says climate change is real, we need somebody else who says it's not," gives you an the impression there's a scientific debate um it, media has moved away from that, as I'm sure you know. But there's still organisations that, like the Wall Street Journal, for example, which in many ways uh, is a reliable publication or, you know, not far from a reliable publication, but will give space to climate change denial. They ensure that the environment is epistemically polluted uh, that the cues for belief don't match up with how we ought to believe um, and I think that's pervasive
0: well i mean it it is it the media's fault i mean that's it sounds like uh, or 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 let me put it let me put it a, another way um, um there are always going to be you know, voices of dissent, you know, within the scientific community, right? And sometimes they turn out to be right, you know, sometimes being dogmatic in that way, you know, does pan out and, and, you know, very often it doesn't. Um, so I I doubt you're recommending that the media should stop, you know, uh, reporting, um, dissenting voices, right? So, so, Um, yes, false balance has, you know, has come under fire and, and, you know, there's been media changes, um, in response to that, uh, although perhaps not enough. Um, but, uh, you know, to what extent is the media responsible and, um, uh, you know, in, in effect exercising, uh, a legitimate need, actually, to report dissenting voices uh, while acknowledging that, you know, there is this consensus. Um, and, and, and to what extent should we just say, well, you know, you're polluting our epistemic environment by giving any space at all to this credentialed um Uh, climate denier, for example, or this credentialed, you know, vaccine denier? I mean, should they just like not provide that? I mean, at at what point is providing that information, even if it avoids false balance, um, at what point does the environment become polluted because of that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, first of all, let, let me preface that by saying I mentioned the media, but uh, the media is certainly not uniquely responsible for epistemic pollution. Uh, all kinds of entities are, including scientists, uh, including reputable scientists doing legitimate science. Um so uh, I mentioned earlier science is in the middle of a replication crisis. A lot of philosophers will tell you it's social psychology is in the middle of a replication crisis. That's true, but um, so are many other fields, including oncology. Uh, so it's not a problem with psychology specifically. Uh, and the replication crisis is a crisis of epistemic pollutants. It's a crisis of scientists' uh Putting aside uh, concern for truth for careerist reasons, uh, and that reflects not just bad behaviour on the part of scientists, um, but also a set of uh, incentives which are, have been out of whack with, uh, insofar as our goal is to produce reliable science, and that should be our goal when it's you know on- oncology. Um, surely that's, that should be our primary goal. So universities uh, are using the wrong incentive systems. Uh, journals, including the best journals, are using uh, unreliable um, heuristics like publishing um, exciting science, uh, science rather than replicable science. Um, all kinds of private Actors are uh, producing epistemic pollution through uh, predatory journals, for example. Uh, So I do think the blame is very widespread. Um, Your question is much more difficult. Um, I'm actually tempted to say that uh, the media shouldn't cover dissenting voices uh, when... Uh, certain conditions are satisfied, when uh, it's a topic of matters. If you want to have a consenting, uh, dissenting voice on particle physics or, for that matter, um, four-dimensionalism, go for it. Um, when there's a strong consensus in the field, um when there's also a consensus that the field, which you might need to look beyond the the, the field to find this out, consensus that the field is reasonably well-structured and, and sufficiently diverse, that's important. So, you know, certain voices aren't being systematically excluded um, on irrelevant grounds. Um, and the consensus is big enough. Then I don't think uh, somebody coming along and reporting and saying, um I don't I haven't got any peer reviewed publications on this, but I think that um uh, uh, the MMR vaccine is uh causes autism. I don't think the media should have been re- re- reporting that. Were that the case? It changes when you when you know I'm thinking of the Wakefield case. There was a paper in the Lancet and um the media I think uh were Perfectly within their rights, perhaps even required uh to cover it when it was it, it appears in a mainstream journal as as well as to then cover the subsequent debate and the retraction and then once it's retracted and um it's run its course with insights, I think it would be irresponsible of the media to uh trot out Wakefield now and say uh, to have him say um it's still true, even though it's retracted, and I was found to have engaged in um, uh, research fraud uh, and have lost my medical license and so forth. It's true. I think it would be irresponsible of the media under that, those conditions to give him uh, to give him airtime.
0: Okay, um, so uh, a number of different questions, but let let me let me. Uh, he, you, you, towards the end of the book, you, um, you defend nudging, right? I mean, you've had a couple of published papers on this, um, uh, nudging in the sense of like Cass Sunstein and, and, you know, setting up environments, uh, in a way that, uh, that promote in, in this case, uh, good belief rather, rather than bad belief. Um, so can you, uh, can you sort of, tell us your, your defense of nudging. I mean, one of the, one of the, um, you know, complaints about it, of course, comes more or less from an individualistic perspective that, you know, that it, it, it is somehow, um, um, you know, violates our, our epistemic autonomy in certain ways. Um, uh, can you, can you say a bit about your, your defense of nudging and particularly your idea that nudging is a, is, as you mentioned before, actually, a form of implicit recommendation?
1: Right. So I I should preface this by saying I I wrote the book before the recent debate over meta-analysis of nudging, which concerns not the replicability but the effect size. Um, So... Um, this has been debated recently in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science um it na- does now seem as though the effect size is a lot smaller than um both the people who've been pushing nudges and the people who worry about them have thought and not doing as much as we thought. I'm not surprised by that but it does it it does uh Use a reason to think that the whole thing may be, uh, you know, uh, not the important issue that I uh, uh, probably imply at the very least that it is. So, nudging uh, is ways of changing the environment of choice such that people choose better, either choose better in their own interests or choose better uh, in, you know, as measured by social outcomes. Um, and people are worried about this because they see it as paternalistic uh, and uh, violating people's autonomy, paternalistic because it violates people's autonomy. Uh, it may lead you to make choices that are in your own interests, but rather than giving you reasons for making those choices, it changes the structure of the choice in a way that disposes you to make the choice. And Taylor and Sunstein in their book describe it as working in that way. They say nudges take advantage of our cognitive laziness, the fact that we we just go with the flow and don't put any effort into thinking. Um, but I think that mischaracterizes uh, at least the central range of nudges. There are probably nudges that my description doesn't capture, but I think the central range actually work by giving us implicit reasons for choice. Um, uh, Richard Taylor, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics, uh, gives the example of his own work on the fault effects um, for superannuation um, or retirement savings. When people sign up to a new job, they may uh, be given an employment contract in which they specify what percentage of their take-home pay, probably their their pre-tax pay, I assume. I don't know how the U.S. system works, Um, is to be sequestered into an account, a, a retirement savings account. And people tend to accept the default so if the default is 1% then people um I- accept that and uh on the basis of lo- data that people tend to undersave for retirement undersave quite dramatically for retirement uh they tested the intervention that uh by changing the default to say 4% or 6% you can get people to save more and their work uh, both in the laboratory um, and a little bit outside shows that people are significantly more likely to choose the uh, higher level if that 's the default so you 've uh, prompted people into acting for in their own um, their own interests. People worry about that because, as they say, having a higher the default savings rate isn't a reason to save more. It's just a, it's a nudge, it's a push that comes, uh, you know, bypassing our reason, our reasoning, if you like. It pushes us in the back in the direction of saving more, rather than you know, sitting us down and saying here's a good reason why you ought to save more. But I don't think that's how it works. I think it is a reason. It's an implicit reason. People make the implicit assumption that the option selected as a default has been selected as a default uh, because it's at least satisfactory. And I suspect you can, you could, uh, you, well, I'm, 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 here's a thought experiment to demonstrate this. Suppose you were to choose as your the your uh, your default. 80%. 80% of your, your pre-tax uh, wage is going to be put in your retirement uh, account. I bet you people would think, well, something's gone wrong here, and wouldn't go with the default. Um, rather, they see it as a reasonable amount, and that's why they select it. That's why they are disposed to select it. Uh, the smallness of the effect size doesn't surprise me. Only one piece of information, as I see it, among many other pieces of information, if they have good reason uh, to uh, override it, they will. Uh, If they don't want to save for retirement, if they have some reason to think that they won't live that long, for example, then they won't uh, accept it. And in the book, I did mention the the very small effect sizes with the ballot order effect. The ballot order effect is John Doris's principal example in his um, behavioral and brain sciences article on um, how we are influenced in these irrational ways. Uh, the ballot order effect is we tend to prefer candidates higher up the ballot to candidates uh, lower down the ballot. And he says, you know, where you're put on the ballot isn't, a, isn't in fact, a reason to choose. Uh, and that's right, Ballot order might be randomised or drawn uh, uh, by lot or it might be alphabetical. That is mean that people aren't treating it as a reason uh, because we do use order to implicate importance. We do it um, with new services, for example. The most important item is listed first. Um, so they may be responding Uh in a way that reflects what they take to be an implicit recommendation. And the effect sizes are very small and the eff- it's only an effect at all for people who um, are low information, who have no inf- prior information about the candidates or no preference between them. Uh, small nudges, small effect sizes can be decisive for deci- and they're decisive for people who have no other uh information or have no other information they see as better information that's what we'd hope people would do we'd hope they would uh follow the 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 information they take to be the best they have available
0: so um uh there's so many different ways to to follow up but we're we're running out of time and and m- maybe one last quick question um of a substantive nature. Uh what are we responsible for as individuals um epistemically speaking? I mean if, you know, if we're rational and outsourcing to others, you know, of course trusting others, but outsourcing, you know, who we should you know rely on, you know, for signaling consensus or, you know, implicitly recommending whatever. What's left for the individual?
1: So uh, I'm a responsibility skeptic. Generally, if by responsibility we mean, um, uh, I think Zimmerman calls it the hypological sense, that is um, to do with blame, uh, blame and praise. I'm, I'm a skeptic about that sort of responsibility for completely independent reasons. There was a there was another book. Um, hard luck for those who want to rush out and buy it. Um, but of course, uh, we're agents. We're agents who respond to reasons and we're we are we're not productive forces that uh, we can't respond to rationally. And uh, so there's a sense of responsible agency in which we hope to exert uh, or exercise responsible agency. Um, I think, though... A lot of the things we take uh, that we take responsible agency to consist in, responsible epistemic agency to consist in, uh, are not things that I recommend. Things like thinking, "Well, I don't know whether vaccines are safe and effective. I'm going to go out and do my own research." I don't think that is uh, something that a, a, a responsible agent should do. Uh, unless they have a lot of background already or they're able to acquire it. And acquiring it means very serious work. It doesn't mean um, going out and reading a couple of popular science books or even a science textbook. It means uh, at least uh, getting uh, degree-level expertise, undergraduate degree-level expertise in that area. That's a minimum, and I don't even know that that's sufficient um instead i think what we should be uh looking for if, when we're trying to um find out for ourselves is looking for evidence about how better to defer um not everything is rosy in science not every consensus is a reliable consensus sometimes it reflects um bad practices um so for example there is work that i used i relied on in earlier um work on uh, agency and self-control which was massively well replicated and turns out just to be false why uh why could this happen because something can be well replicated uh, while um Uh, all the evidence against it's being shelved because it's unpublishable. We know that ego depletion is real. So failures replicated are uh, unpublishable and you get more and more evidence in favor uh, of of an effect that turns out not to be real at all. Um, How do I know that? Well, in this case, the psychological science community got its act together and and, uh, began to publish failed replications uh, and to conduct pre registered work and um, multi lab work. And uh, we were able to show, or they were able to show, that the effect isn't real. Um, but there were many other uh, results out there that have never been sufficiently uh, replicated. Um, and nothing beats talking to people who are genuinely expert in the field and are sensitive to this kind of concern. Uh, In the absence of, you know, tame psychologists on tap, um, there is work on uh, how fields need to be structured. Um, Are people excluded because they belong to the wrong gender? Or um, are um, uh, Indigenous voices completely excluded Um, on some topics? You know, that's a, a... A heuristic that we should be that that we should be concerned. Um, Are patient voices being excluded? Um, Is the consensus being accurately reported? I think it's this kind of higher order evidence that we should be looking into, rather than into the first order evidence about you know do the drugs work? Um, Is the 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 uh, the treatment condition? uh, appropriately structured, that sort of thing.
0: Right. Okay. Well, we could we could keep this conversation going, but we are we are out of time. Um, so, uh, last question: What are you working on now? Are you you know following up this book, or have you gone off in one of your other many different directions?
1: Uh, I am following up in similar sorts of work. Uh, the uh, AH, AHRC, that's the um, Arts and Humanities Research Council here in the UK, have funded me to do work in social epistemology uh, on epistemic autonomy. Me and Adam Carter at Glasgow uh, and and Templeton have given me work, uh, money to do some work on uh, rationality. Uh, in Australia, Macquarie University, with collaborators uh, Mark Alfano and Rob Ross. Um, I am particularly interested right now in non-belief explanations. So as I mentioned, um, some people are true believers in these conspiracy theories, but I think there are quite a few who are not true believers. Um, Some of them are just trolls. Some of them are just... Uh, you know, out to own the libs or, or in it for the lulls. But I'm particularly interested in those who I think are sincere but mistaken when they report their beliefs. Um they take themselves to believe something but they don't genuinely believe it. That's the current topic of research.
0: Cool. Okay. Well, um I wish you luck with with all that uh very interesting work and i'm sure we'll be will be seeing the fruits of those of those grants and collaborations uh in in short order. um but in the meantime, uh i just wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk with us at New Books in Philosophy about bad belief.
1: Thanks, Carrie. It's been fun.